Well, good morning, church family. I'm just super excited to be back in the pulpit, and a special thank you once again to Dr. Harry Fletcher for taking us through that wonderful book of Habakkuk. I don't know about you, but I'm never going to look at the book of Habakkuk the same way again after that sermon series. Uh, Today, we are going to be taking a detour and looking at Psalm 131. It is a beautiful psalm in the Bible, very relevant for our situation today. And then from there, uh, through the summer, we're going to be setting aside the Gospel of Luke for a season and entering into a series, a six-part sermon series that I'm calling The Stories of Grace. They're my favorite stories in the Bible about God's grace, and we see grace from so many different angles as we look at these stories. So I'm looking forward to getting into that with you, but this morning we will be looking at Psalm 131. Now, have you ever noticed that some people have peace and other people don't? You look at some people and some people are unflappable. It's problems, difficulties hit those people and they just, they just hold the course while other people seem to fall apart at the slightest hint of crisis. Why is that? Uh, are some people... Um, just naturally born as a genetic? Is their mom and dad uh, the types who are always stable or great-grandfather on the mother's side? Is it innate? Or is peace something that is cultivated? And I think that's a great question to be asking, particularly when we think about the situation that we're in right now in this COVID-19 world, because many of us are experiencing the opposite of peace. Several weeks ago, I shared an article with you. The discomfort that you are feeling is grief. And we know that grief is a real process. And grief, of course, disrupts peace. But there's also other peace destroyers that we're dealing with right now, such as anger and loneliness and sadness. Some of you are dealing with guilt. Why guilt? Well, because when you have a lot of time in your hands, and you go deep into your thought life, of course, that drums up your past, old wounds, scars. And all of those feelings disrupt any semblance of peace that we might have. But when you look at Psalm 131, this beautiful little psalm, you hear a person talking about life in such a way who seems to have found peace. In fact, as you hear this person write, you sense the calm, the restfulness, the composure, and the tranquility of the soul. His name's David, and if you know anything about David, David had a lot of ups and downs in life. In fact, more ups and downs than probably many of us have experienced. So the question is, is how did David find peace? And I don't want to leave you lingering with that question. I think the answer is actually pretty simple. David found peace because he had a simple trust in God. Now, I'm not talking about a simplistic trust. You know, David didn't throw platitudes at his complex problems. No, David learned to simply trust God with his complex problems. You see, David realized that peace is not innate, that it is cultivated. He took steps to grow his trust in God, and he took these steps. When he took these steps, he found peace with this God. Listen to David talk in this psalm. Let me read it to you. Psalm 131, a song of a sense of David. O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. 
I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me, but I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Now, I want to read that same psalm to you, only this time I want to read it to you from Eugene Peterson's paraphrase, The Message. He says, God, I'm not trying to rule the roost. I don't want to be king of the mountain. I haven't meddled where I have no business or fantasized grandiose plans. I've kept my feet on the ground. I've cultivated a quiet heart. Like a baby content in its mother's arms, my soul is a baby content. Wait, Israel, for God. Wait with hope. Hope now. Hope always. And we can break this simple psalm of trust down by identifying three attitudes that David expresses through the psalm. And before you think that all of this is simple in nature... Uh, Hear these words from Charles Spurgeon. He was a great preacher in the 19th century of Psalm 131. He says, Psalm 131 is one of the shortest psalms to read, but one of the longest to learn. And that is so true, isn't it? I mean, if peace were easy to find, wouldn't we all have it? But it turns out that developing these attitudes is a lifelong process. So the first attitude is humility. Look there at verse 1 and notice the three knots in verse 1. David says, My heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself. Basically, David is saying here in the Scriptures, it's not all about me. I recognize that there is a world that is much bigger than the three-foot space that I occupy. And in order to combat pride, I think that David actually had to make choices in his life. He had to reject different forms of pride. And he's addressing those different forms of pride here. He, he looks at three different forms of pride. The first is the pride of independence. This is the pride of seeking to do life without God. God, I'm not trying to rule the roost. Or the pride of superiority. This is the pride of asserting that I am better than other people. I don't want to be king of the mountain. And the pride of ambition. This is the pride of using my ambition to build my own reputation. I haven't meddled where I have no business or fantasized grandiose plans. In fact, if you want to talk about an attitude that is innate, it is pride. And a simple illustration of this, just go to a school scrimmage yard where kids are about to pick up a pickup game of basketball or football or anything like that, and you will see a pecking order emerge. And as that pecking order emerge, you will realize that no one had to teach a child to want to be first, to wish to be the best, and to wish to be the most popular. And here's the thing. It doesn't die in our youth either. Spend 10 minutes on social media, and you will see more a more refined attempt of doing what the kids are doing in the scrimmage yard. We put our best pictures to present our so-called perfect lives. We endlessly post about our little worlds. We're all somewhat suffering from eye disease. I, I, I. You know, it's been said that when we are 20, we are always worried about what people are thinking of us. When we're 40, 
We no longer care what people are thinking about us. When we are 60, we realize that no one was ever really thinking about us. Now, think about those perspectives, 20, 40, and 60, and ask yourself the question, which perspective brings about the most peace in your life? Why is humility such a difficult lesson to learn? One author, Parker Palmer, cites one significant reason. It has to do with what is rewarded in our society. He notes that leaders tend to rise to power by operating very competently and effectively in the external world, but they tend to lack awareness in the internal realm. And think about it like this. What do you call someone who's recently gone through a divorce, is privately an alcoholic, whose kids really don't want to have much of a relationship with them, but is the CEO of a Fortune 500 company. You call him a success. Palmer explains, I have met many leaders whose confidence in the external world is so high that they regard the inner life as illusory or as a waste of time as a magical fantasy trip into a region that doesn't even exist. Essentially, externally a winner, internally a loser. That's one of the sad side effects of pride. Humility, though, requires internal victories. I know of no better definition of humility than this. Humility is appropriately valuing ourselves. Pride means that I overvalue myself. It's all about me. Self-loathing, which I would suggest to you is another form of pride, is where I undervalue myself. I'm worthless, which clearly is not true. You were created in the image of the God of the universe. You are anything but worthless. So humility is valuing yourself the way that God values you. And and notice this as well, that that God must be at the center of the humble life. And this is where trust comes in, because if I can trust God, then I can trust God with my value. If I don't trust God, well, then I must fight to showcase my own value. Think about those three forms of pride again. Now, insert God into the center of the universe. Instead of independence, I believe that I am utterly dependent upon God. Instead of superiority, I believe that I am no better than anyone else because all humans are created in the image of God. Instead of ambition, or better said, personal ambition, I'm building God's kingdom, not my own little fiefdom for the sake of human flourishing and for God's glory. Eugene Peterson hits the nail on the head with these words. He says, Being a Christian means accepting the terms of creation, accepting God as our maker and redeemer and growing day by day into an increasingly glorious creature in Christ, developing joy, experiencing love, maturing in peace. By the grace of Christ, we experience the marvel of being made in the image of God. If we reject this, the only alternative is to attempt the hopelessly forthright, embarrassingly awkward imitation of God made in the image of men and women like us. You look at this psalm and you see it. David has learned how to rightly value himself. And what did that do? It didn't shrink his world. It grew his world. 
He realized that he could have a relationship with God. And what did he learn about this God? He learned that this God is for him. He learned that God wishes to have a life-giving relationship with him. And he, he realized that this relationship with God can go so deep. In fact, that leads us to the second attitude, which is a quiet confidence in God. He illustrates this with the image of a baby resting contentedly in his mother's arms. I've kept my feet on the ground. I've cultivated a quiet heart. Like a baby content in its mother's arms, my soul is a baby content. What a beautiful picture and image. You know, today we're celebrating Mother's Day and To all of you mothers out there, I want to wish you a happy Mother's Day. I just think what you do is so special, so unique, so important for our society. And I want to say a special happy Mother's Day to my mom. Thank you, mom, for putting up with me over the years and instilling values in me. Uh, You were a wonderful, you are a wonderful mother. And of course, to the love of my life, the mother of my children, Katie, I want to wish you a happy Mother's Day. You've taught me so much about life, about love, and about God through your humble model. And I know you're all thinking it right now. I did marry way up, and I'm okay with that. Now, in Scripture, God reveals himself to us as Father, and that's the right way to think about God. God is not like a father to us. He is our Father. But Scripture also teaches us that God loves us in the way that only a mother could love us. And why would God want to present his love like this to us? And I I think the answer to that question is there are some things that mama does best. Uh, Recently, I was talking with the staff team and asked them this question on the fly. I said, all right, everyone, we're about to end our meeting. Tell me, what does mama do best? What did mama do that was uniquely better than anyone else in the world? And it was visceral. It was unplanned. I just wanted to see what they said. And of course, we realized very quickly that there was quite a few things that mama does best. You know, mama is best at caring for us when we are sick. I mean, Don't get me wrong, I love my dad, but dad sometimes says, go get the popsicle yourself. Mama always asks the question, is there anything else I can do for you, honey? Or who do you want to call when you need to pour your heart out to someone who is not going to judge you? Mama. She was the first person I called in college. Who is it that when you walk through the door of your house in high school, when you're not telling anyone anything about what's going on in your world, who notices right away that something's wrong with you? Mama. Who is it that won't let you settle? Who's always going to hold you to the standards that have been instilled in you? And of course, when you think about your childhood, who is the best cuddler? Um, Mama, right? Every morning, my kids knock on the door of the bedroom and You hear a little voice say, can I come in and cuddle? And we, of course, say, oh, come on in. You can cuddle. And it's like I don't even exist. They bypass me, and they go right to Katie because there's some things that Mama does best. What's amazing about God as our Father is that he is dynamic and capable of providing us with the unique blend of love of both a committed father and a caring mother. And so there is a mother-like love that God gives us too. In Isaiah 49, 15, 
The prophet says, Can a woman forget her nursing child that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. Well, how about Isaiah 66, 13? As one whom his mother comforts, so I will comfort you. Friend, do you want to experience real peace? Well, to experience that, you have to learn to trust God as a child has learned to trust his or her mother. Because we know with mother that there are certain inalienable realities when that home is healthy. You know that mom is always going to love you. Mom's always going to want something for you and not something from you. Mom will be the last person standing when it comes to fighting for your good. And that's why we have that expression, mama bear, don't we? And in my case, mama's always going to be the first one to repost any of your Facebook posts. So thank you for doing that, mom. I appreciate it. Here's what I'm learning. And remember, you might look at me and see a pastor, but we're all on a journey. We're all learning together. And something that I'm learning right now is that the quiet confidence comes when we meet with God daily. Like a child who craves his mother's milk, your soul craves communion with God daily. You know what happens to your soul when you stop, when you break that communion with God in a daily fashion? That's when the trust factor starts being affected. That's when you start wondering if God wants something from you and he doesn't want something for you. Or you start to believe that God could stop loving you. Or you think that God might treat you in the way that so many other people have treated you. You know, that that God's going to ditch you at some point when you're no longer useful for him. But here's the deal with the soul that meets with God regularly. That soul gets to meet who God is, the real God. And you find out that he is a refuge. That he's a tower. A strong tower. That he's like a warrior who would go out on your behalf and defend you against thousands. Or like a mother eagle who jealously guards her nest and protects her young. And you also learn that God himself is what is most satisfying for your soul. Timothy Keller shares, If grace has changed our hearts, we don't ultimately care if life goes the way we want it. As long as we have him, the joys of acclaim, wealth, and power are nothing compared to the eternal acclaim, wealth, and power we have in him. Do you want peace? Peace comes from a humble trust in God. It comes from a quiet, confident trust in God. Thirdly, it also comes from a committed hope in God. David says, wait, Israel, for God. Wait with hope. Hope now, hope always. And notice in this verse that David does not just commend hope, he calls for it. Because we shouldn't live without hope in this life. I've shared a story before here at OBC. It's a great story. It happened right here on Cape Cod Bay back in December 17, 1927. The crew of a Navy submarine was trolling beneath the waters in Cape Cod Bay, undergoing one of their routine exercises. 
The Coast Guard cutter Paulding was traveling across the surface of the water at the same time, and the two ships never saw one another. As the submarine was emerging toward the surface, it came up just in time to receive a death blow from the Paulding. The submarine, with its crew of 40, sank within five minutes down 100 feet to the ocean floor. Now, you're dealing with 1927 here, and so the technology, the capabilities to make it down to the bottom of the ocean floor quickly was not present. And you couple that with a really just terrible, horrible bout of weather, and it took 24 hours for the first diver to descend to the wreckage. It was there that when the diver's foot first hit the hull of the ship that he heard tapping, he discerned that there were survivors who were alive. They were trapped. Pounding out on Morris Code on the hull with a hammer, the diver discerned that there were six crewmen who were still alive. And they desperately wanted to save them. And efforts were being made to reach these men before it was too late. But the weather just continued to get worse. And every hope at salvation failed. With the air supply dwindling, the six survivors tapped out in Morse code a final haunting question. Is there any I know that for some of you, that's the question you're asking yourself right now. You're dealing with a complex situation, complex emotions. You're grappling with fears. You're going inside of yourself and you're beginning to wonder, can I really have peace? Can, can I really know this God that David's talking about in this psalm? Is this something that could happen in my life? Is there anything more? Friend, listen to this. It's been well said that the human species needs a a few essential things to survive. Think about it. Food. Without it, you will starve in four to six weeks. Water, which is even more crucial, you get about three days. But if you don't have any water, bodily systems begin to shut down. Air. Seven minutes without air, and you will undergo irreparable brain damage. But what of hope? Hope is one of those things that you shouldn't go one millisecond without. Is life really worth living without hope? That's that's what the Bible's all about. That there is hope. You see, you can't have a simple trust without a sure hope. Hope is always positive. It's never negative. It's optimistic. It's positive about God and his plans and the future and his purposes for your life. You can't say that I trust God while saying that I don't have hope. You see, if you don't have hope, according to the Bible, what you do have is unbelief. Because hope believes that God is going to produce positive outcomes. It believes that God has made promises and that he will fulfill those promises in his good timing. Friend, we come back to the big question again. How can you find peace? It turns out that peace comes when we learn to simply trust God. That trust requires the attitude of humility. It requires a 
quiet confidence. It also requires hope, a committed hope. Now, trusting someone can be a difficult thing for us because we all know that you can't just trust anyone. Some people are not worthy or capable of handling our trust. In fact, it depends on whose hands it's in. Think of it like this. Suppose you were to put an expensive basketball in my hands, a nice basketball. That basketball in my hands is worth about $60. Now, you take that same basketball and you put it in the hands of NBA All-Star LeBron James. That basketball becomes worth now $40 million per year. It depends on whose hands it's in. Or you take a four or $500 golf club, you put it in my hands, I go out, I hack up the field a little bit, I probably devalue the worth of the golf club some. You take that same golf club, a nice driver, you put it in the hands of Tiger Woods, and over the course of a career to date, he earns $800 million. It depends on whose hands it's in. Or what about a sling with a couple of rocks? Now, I tell you, outside of some freakish accident, that thing is not a weapon with me. I'm not even going to hit the broadside of a barn. But you take those same items, you put them in the hands of a young shepherd boy named David. He slays a giant. He puts the confidence in the heart of a nation and rises to the rank of king. Depends on whose hands it's in. What about five loaves and two fish? I mean, for me, I get one meal and maybe some bread left over. But you put those same loaves and fish in the hands of Jesus and he feeds thousands. Depends on whose hands it's in. Or what about a handful of nails? Maybe I could build a bird box. Not a very good one. But you put those same nails in the hands of Jesus, and he saves the lives of billions around the world, paving the way for them for eternity when they put their hope and their trust in him. It depends on whose hands it's in. You see, friend, your worries, your cares, all the things that you're stressed about right now. If you leave those things in your hands today, you are going to have little ability to find the peace that David's talking about here in Psalm 131. But you take those same cares, those same worries, those same problems, and you place those in the hands of Jesus, he has the power to radically change your life, to bring you the peace that only God could bring into your life. Because remember, it depends on whose hands it's in. So let me ask you a question. Have you ever put yourself in Jesus' hands? Well, the Bible tells us that that process comes by placing our faith in him. And if you've never done that before, allow me to walk you through three simple steps today that can help you to place yourself in his hands. The first step is this. Realize that you are not God and that you are powerless to achieve God's favor or to earn his forgiveness. Now, friend, that's that humble trust we're talking about. You can't earn God's favor. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fallen short of God's glorious standard. So then we need step two, to believe that Jesus Christ is God, that he died on the cross for your sins, and that he is risen from the dead. That's the quiet confidence. 
And that's the hope. You can't earn the salvation, but Jesus earned it for you. And he's the only one that could do that. John 14, 6, Jesus tells us, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Thirdly, in a prayerful moment, turn your life and will over to the care and control of the Lord Jesus Christ and allow him to work in and through you. And if you'd like to put your faith in Jesus today, I'd love to lead you in this simple prayer. Pray with me. Dear Jesus, I believe that you are the only Savior and the risen Lord. Thank you for dying on the cross for my sins. I want you to come into my life at this moment. As best as I know how, I turn my life over to your care and control. Amen. Well, friend, if you just prayed that prayer and put your faith in Jesus today, you have found real peace. You have taken your life and reoriented it to put God at the center. I want to tell you, you have just begun a beautiful journey of faith, and and we want to walk with you in that. We have some resources at our website. One that I'd like to point out in particular is a website, whatifobc.church. And that's if you're looking to explore more about faith in Jesus. It's just one word, whatifobc.church. And you go there and you'll hear some stories and testimonies about other people who have found peace with Jesus. And if you'd like to reach out to us, there's also a connect card in the link below and you can share prayer requests or if you'd like to tell us that you've trusted Jesus, of course I want to hear that. And here's the deal. It's our desire to walk with you. We want to see you flourish in this life walking with Jesus. God bless you.